You're listening to the audio commentary track for Mothra. My name is Steve Reifel. My name is Ed Gatchaszewski, and we're the authors of a forthcoming biography of Ashiro Hanba, the director of this film, as well as the original Godzilla, and most of the science fiction and fantasy films made by Toho Studios during the 1950s and 60s. In its day, Mothra was a rather lavish production with an all-star cast, headlined by the popular identical twin female singing duo, The Peanuts. Even though Mothra may cause a lot of destruction, it's a sympathetic monster, and the film has fantasy elements and a feminine feel, making it unique among Japanese monster movies. Mothra was released in Japan by Toho on July 30th, 1961, and the English language version, which we're watching here, was released in the U.S. by Columbia Pictures less than a year later in May 1962. Well, just seven years after the apocalyptic nuclear horror of Godzilla, director Ishiro Honda and Eiji Tsuburaya, the father of Japanese special effects, collaborated on this entertainment extravaganza, a genre-bending and blending giant monster movie like no other. Mothra is equal parts sci-fi, fantasy, satire, musical, and more. It's lighthearted fun with a touch of the serious, sprinkled with ideas about nuclear weapons, the environment, racism, cultural imperialism, capitalist greed, and on and on. This film was a turning point in the history of Japanese fantasy film. Most all the others that had come before it were played straight, but Mothra throws off the shackles of conventional science fiction movies and borrows elements of many different kinds of films that were popular in Japan at the time. And as a result of this creative freedom, Japanese sci-fi and fantasy cinema would become a genre unto itself and would survive and thrive for nearly a decade longer, well after the American sci-fi boom of the 50s was over and done. Mothra was made roughly in the middle of the decade known in Japan as the Showa 30s, spanning from 1955 to 64. This was the most commercially successful period in the history of Japanese film. By now, the Japanese movie studios had recovered from the effects of World War II and the occupation, and they were cranking out movies at a breakneck pace. For a while, Japan was producing more films per year than the United States. Television hadn't really caught up yet, so movies were still the top form of entertainment, and box office returns were robust. And it was into this environment that Toho science fiction and fantasy films were born. And by the late 50s to early 60s, the genre was flourishing, not only with giant monster films, but also space operas like The Mysterians and Battle in Outer Space, and what you might call the radioactive mutant films such as The Human Vapor and The H-Man. And this entire movement, if you will, was spearheaded by Tomoyuki Tanaka, a producer who had been with Toho Studios since the early 1940s, but who really came into his own after the phenomenal success of the original Godzilla in 1954. Tanaka created Godzilla by combining the real-life story of a fishing boat irradiated by an H-bomb test with inspiration from the American sci-fi film The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Tanaka would often brainstorm ideas for his sci-fi pictures and then hire popular writers to flesh out those ideas, and this is how Mothra was developed. Now, in the summer of 1960, Tomiyuki Tanaka hired novelist and screenwriter Shinichiro Nakamura to write an original story for a new monster movie. Tanaka had previously hired science fiction writers to develop stories for Godzilla, Rodan, and the Mysterians, but Nakamura was a serious dramatic writer. His previous credits included adapting Yukio Mishima's novel The Sound of the Waves for the screen in 1954, and Tanaka hired Nakamura because he wanted a more mature type of monster movie this time out. Nakamura discussed the assignment with two of his writer friends, Takehiko Fukunaga and Zenie Hota, and the three of them together decided to collaborate with each man writing one part of the three-act story. Nakamura wrote that at the time he worked on Mothra, he had been undergoing electroshock therapy, but we have no idea what effect, if any, this had on the writing of this very fanciful story. 
The helicopter pilot here is played by Kenji Sahara, star of Rodan and the H-Man, and an actor who has embraced his association with science fiction and fantasy movies and TV through the years. It's quite a long cameo, considering this character never shows up again. I'm not sure where they filmed this, likely in Kyushu, but wherever it is, it looks completely desolate, like nothing could ever grow there. It totally fits the look of an area that's been decimated by the bomb. Mothra stops at nothing and endures great harm in order to rescue its twin soulmates, the small beauties, known as the shobijin in Japanese. It's actually a very clever twist on the King Kong formula, with many themes and scenes paralleling the Kong storyline, and the original Godzilla as well. The original Mothra story was serialized in January 1961 in weekly Asahi Extra magazine, under the title The Glowing Fairies and Mothra. All the basic plot points and characters of the film are there, but the original story is long and meandering and includes a lot of ideas about political tensions between Japan and a stand-in for the United States, and a long expository sequence about the mythology of Infant Island and the origins of its people, the fairies, and Mothra. But Shinichi Sekizawa, the screenwriter, deserved the credit for distilling and editing the original story, or three stories really, into a tight, fast-paced script. Even if the bones of the story were already there, Sekizawa almost completely rewrote it, so we'll be pointing out some of the things that he changed along the way. This is a National Sports Center, which was also used in Battle in Outer Space for the Space Center. It was a brand new complex made in anticipation of the upcoming Tokyo Olympiad. Director Honda would also use this location in Gora. On all his films, Sekizawa would just skim whatever story material was given to him, take the best parts, then go and write the movie as he envisioned it. And that's what he did here. His writing philosophy was just to keep it simple. He felt the audience would lose interest if a story got bogged down in too much detail. The last survivor to enter is Ren Yamamoto, who played bit parts in many of Honda's science fiction films. It's kind of funny that he almost seems to get typecast as a shipwreck survivor. In the original Godzilla, he's the man who survives Godzilla's attack on the fishing boat, and in War of the Gargantuas, he's one of the survivors of Gaila's attack in the opening scene. The intrepid reporter with a flair for slapstick whom we're about to meet is played by Frankie Sakai, a popular comic actor in Japan during the 1950s and 60s. Sakai was famous for starring in two long-running series of white-collar comedies from Toho Studios, the Shacho or Company President movies and the Ekimae or Station Front movies. Sakai was born in 1929 and he was in his early 30s when he starred in this film. There are several glimpses of his knack for physical comedy, such as the scene where the mouse crawls up his sleeve. Among his talents, Sakai was an accomplished jazz drummer and he could be seen banging the skins in several films. Film historian Donald Ritchie says that during the 50s, both Frankie Sakai and Ken Uehara, who co-stars as the scientist Harada in this film, specialized in playing the role of the quote-unquote funny father in domestic comedies, sort of a buffoonish character that lampooned the strict patriarchy of the Japanese family unit. And even though Sakai was primarily a comic actor, he also played many straight dramatic parts. Toho fans will recognize Sakai as the father from the nuclear war disaster film The Last War in 1961. And perhaps Sakai's most recognized role outside of Japan was in the 1980 miniseries Shogun, in which he co-starred with Richard Chamberlain and Toshiro Mifune. He died in 1996. According to his co-star Hiroshi Koizumi, Sakai was very involved in labor issues for actors and wanted to create a collective bargaining system with the studios, which Japanese actors did not have at that time. It's supposed to be deserted there. On the front page. 
The headline will read, The Mysterious Natives on Biru Island. Mysterious Natives on Biru Island. That's it. And uh, don't forget to quote the ambassador. Gentlemen. Playing the Rolissican ambassador is Harold S. Conway, a businessman who lived in Tokyo and who played Western Authority figures in a number of Japanese films at the time. We'll talk a bit later about all the Western-looking people in this film and who they were and how they occupied a rather unique niche in Japanese cinema in those days. We cannot explain the presence of these natives on the island at this time. It is our hope in the very Notice the flag is a hybrid of the stars and stripes and the hammer and sickle. In the original treatment for this film, the fictional country was called Roshirika, a more obvious combination of the Japanese pronunciations of Russia and America. But it was eventually changed to Rolisika, which is only slightly more subtle. Some of the Rolisikan military men in the film wear Russian-looking uniforms, but other than that, it's pretty clear that Rolisika is a stand-in for America. All right. Thank you. Takashi Shimura's casting as the editor here is a nice touch. While he has that everyman kind of look, he still projects an air of authority and commands respect. Rather than play the usual gruff editor, his portrayal is much more friendly and likable. It's a good vibe and very believable. The newspaper gag here is a rather clever and playful way to introduce the second hero of our story, Dr. Shinichi Chujo, sometimes pronounced Chuzo with a Z in the English version. Hiroshi Koizumi, who sports an uncharacteristically unkempt three-day stubble look here, was one of the most recognizable actors in Toho science fiction films and a very popular actor in general during the 50s. Koizumi graduated from Keio University in 1948 with an economics degree, then became an announcer for NHK Radio, but he always loved movies and he dreamed of being an actor. He was a big fan of American movies and of Montgomery Clift in particular. Koizumi was a member of Toho's third New Face program in 1951. The New Face program was Toho's way of cultivating new talent. The program produced many famous actors, including Toshiro Mifune. Koizumi's first starring role came a year later in 1952 in a film called Youth Conference, when Ryo Ikebe, the star of Battle in Outer Space, incidentally, had to decline the part due to a scheduling conflict. Koizumi was quite handsome, and through the 50s, he often played leading men in supporting parts in romantic dramas. Koizumi says he was probably most famous for a series of samurai films directed by Masahiro Makino and for playing the husband in the popular Sazae-san series based on a comic strip about a Japanese housewife. It's a nice touch how Frankie Sakai's bit with the mouse breaks the ice between the journalist and the scientist. After that, they're pretty much fast friends. In the original treatment for the film, the reporter came back to Chujo's house again and again, and it took forever to gain the scientist's trust. By the way, according to Hiroshi Koizumi, this was shot very early in the production, perhaps even on the first day of shooting. Frankie Sakai suffered a rather painful mouse bite to the hand during this scene. Good girl. Come on now. Thanks. Very kind of you. Uh, the photographer, Michiko Hanamura, is played by Kyoko Kagawa, who's widely recognized as one of the finest actresses of post-war Japan. She was born in 1931 and joined Shintoho Studios when she was just 17 years old. One of her earliest film appearances was in the 1952 film Mother by the acclaimed director Mikio Naruse, and in the 50s she played leading and supporting roles for a number of other prestigious directors such as Yasujiro Ozu, Tadashi Imai, Kon Ichikawa, and Hiroshi Inagaki, and her versatility was such that she was equally skilled at drama or light comedy, modern films or period films. 
Film historians Donald Ritchie and Joseph Anderson said that during the 1950s, Kagawa's specialty was playing the, quote, traditional Japanese girl bound by all the usual conventions, but she also exhibits a genuine cheerfulness which is opposed to the false sweetness of so many Japanese ingenues. They also pointed out her ability to play modern Japanese women influenced by the encroaching Western and American culture during the post-war years. And her role as the photographer in this film fits that description. An independent single woman with a career would have been a rather modern symbol in those days. Nevertheless, the way Michi lights Fukuda's cigarette here clearly illustrates her place in this world. Kagawa played Toshiro Mifune's lover in The Lower Depths, her first of many films for director Akira Kurosawa. Kagawa would become the actress most closely associated with Kurosawa's work. In the 60s, she played prominent roles in Kurosawa's The Bad Sleep Well, High and Low, and most memorably as a homicidal woman in Redbeard. And she also appeared in Matadayo, Kurosawa's last movie, in 1993. Reporters are not allowed to go along on the expedition. Was it Nelson at the conference he's holding now? Please. Now I'm sure Let's see if you can recognize this voice. One story I would tell you, when I finished Mosada and then they released it in the States, my mother and my brother went to a drive-in movie, and I was in that film. Then I get a letter from my mother. She said, uh, Jerry, I was so happy to see your sweet face, but can't you be a nicer man? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really funny. That's the late Jerry Ito from a 2004 interview, a very sweet man and a far cry from the oily, slimy, sneering, despicable character of Clark Nelson. Jerry Ito, not Jelly Ito, a ridiculous error in the English version credits, was the son of the influential world-class modern dancer Michio Ito, and Gerald Tamakichi Ito was born in July of 1927 in New York. After Pearl Harbor, Michio Ito was one of many Japanese living in the U.S. who were arrested by the FBI and falsely accused of spying for Japan. So rather than stay and face the kangaroo court, Michio Ito went back to Japan, and during the years of the war, father and son lost contact. Jerry didn't know if his father were dead or alive. This is a traditional Japanese send-off for a ship going on an expedition. You see this in other Toho films like the first Godzilla, and a similar scene is held in battle in outer space when the astronauts are departing for the moon. The band plays while the well-wishers on shore hold streamers, the other end of which are held by departing passengers. And here our crafty reporter sneaks aboard the ship, although we don't get to see how. In the original story treatment, the reporter didn't join the research party, but instead took another boat much later on and went to Infant Island alone. Infant Island is, of course, renamed Beiru Island in the English language cut. Well, getting back to Jerry Ito's life story, when Jerry was serving in the occupation forces in Japan, he would go into Tokyo on shore leave and search for his father. He eventually found him, and there was not only a tearful reunion between them, but Jerry was introduced for the first time to his Japanese extended family, many of whom worked in the entertainment world, and these family connections would be important later on. When his hitch in the military was up, Jerry went back to New York and studied at the New School and began acting on Broadway and on live television. In the mid-50s, Jerry decided to pursue a career in Hollywood, but first he took a trip to visit his father in Japan again, and this little detour ended up changing the course of his life. One of Jerry's uncles was the actor Korea Senda, one of the stars of Battle in Our Space who headed the prestigious Actors Theater in Tokyo. And another uncle was Kisako Ito, a highly regarded set designer for stage and screen. With his family connections, Jerry began getting roles in plays and films. 
For decades, Jerry Ito was a celebrity fixture in Japan, performing in stage plays, films, TV series, variety shows. He headlined his own nightclub act for many years, performing American pop standards and movie songs in his rich baritone. He appeared in two other cult science fiction films, the two-head monster film The Manster and Toho's nuclear war drama The Last War. Many of his films were comedies, such as a 1963 film Wall-Eyed Nippon, in which he starred as a Japanese-American professor visiting Japan to soak up the culture, and in which Jerry co-starred with his friend Akira Takarada of Godzilla fame. His final movie was the cult classic Message from Space, directed by Kinji Fukusaku in 1978. But he's certainly best known in the West for his performance here in Mothra as Nelson, the ruthless capitalist whom film historian Glenn Erickson once described as, quote, an exploitative combo of Carl Denham and Al Capone committing theft and mass murder against native populations with the complicit backing of the Relisican government. Jerry chews up the scenery, but in a good way. His stage training is evident in his broad mannerisms. He does everything with an evil flourish. He leaps off the screen so much, he makes most of his fellow cast members look downright subdued. Ito's slimy performance is a great counterpart to Frankie Sakai's charming mugging. Jerry Ito and Hiroshi Koizumi play adversaries in this movie, but they became great friends during the production. Jerry was known as a debonair man, a sharp dresser, and Koizumi remembers asking Jerry for advice on how to dress well. At the time Mothra was made, Jerry had only been studying Japanese for a few years, and director Honda once remarked that his Japanese was truly terrible. Well, in 1997, Jerry Ito suffered a massive stroke and lost the power of speech. Uh, he and his wife Sakai moved to Los Angeles, where Jerry underwent speech therapy, and he eventually regained his ability not only to speak, but to sing, and he recorded a new CD. But sadly, in 2007, he passed away from cancer at age 80. A truly wonderful man. Well, here old ones. Hello. Hello. Dr. Harada, is there nothing we can do about this dictator, Mr. Nelson? What I can appreciate about Frankie Sakai is that, while he may be playing a comic role, with few exceptions, he almost always plays it in a straightforward manner. So you can take him seriously as a hero while still having fun with his character. I forgot. One obvious question to ask is, why a giant moth? Nakamura, the original writer, wanted a creature that would undergo a metamorphosis, a transformation. There had been insect monsters before in American sci-fi pictures like Them and Tarantula and the grasshoppers in The Beginning of the End, but those were hideous mutants, while Mothra is something elegant and graceful and you might even say beautiful. Producer Tanaka created Mothra's name by combining the word moth, or mosu in Japanese, with ra, the final syllable of Godzilla's Japanese name, Gojira. And by the 60s, this was a standard naming convention for Japanese monsters. Many of them ended in Ra, King Ghidorah, Ebida, Gamera. Other studios were naming their monsters this way too, not just Toho. In many of director Honda's science fiction pictures, you'll see a shot just like this with the researchers trudging uphill. Here's a nice matte painting creating a valley full of life amidst the desolation of Infant Island. It's a really nice composition, and the painting blends in with the live action filmed on location. Honda's intention was to make this part of Infant Island appear as utopia within hell. Just as he would often include a scene or a line of dialogue in his films that expressed his commitment to world peace and his anti-war views, Honda would also occasionally use scenes like this one to express his concern about the effects of modern civilization on the Earth's environment. Another example of this occurs at the end of King Kong vs. Godzilla. After the monsters destroy much of Tokyo, in spite of everything mankind has done to stop them, one character says, and we're paraphrasing, 
We humans should think about how we treat plants and animals. We should learn from them. Japanese science fiction and fantasy films of this era were always re-edited before they were released by American distributors. Some of the films were heavily reworked and others, like Mothra, were subjected to relatively minor changes that nevertheless had an impact on the way the audience views the movie. Thankfully, we now have the opportunity to watch and compare the Japanese version of this film with its English-language counterpart. So as we go along, we'll point out some of the places where the American cut, which we're watching now, is shorter or different than the Japanese cut. Mothra's not an out-and-out -out fantasy story. It's set in the real world, after all. But scenes like this one in the cave lend the movie a, a fantasy atmosphere. And suddenly we can hear Chujo's thoughts as if he's in a dreamlike state. It's a nice touch, and it's kind of regrettable that the movie doesn't go further with this. And still, this is sort of an odd technique. Koizumi provides a voiceover narration articulating what he's thinking about in this strange cave. It's the only place in the movie that this is done, and it gives the audience some information that is probably important, but it's at the cost of an inconsistent narrative. The original Japanese version of this film has a more dreamlike quality during this sequence, but the way this was re-edited for the American version, it has the effect of downplaying the fantasy feeling. Michael Friend, who led the restoration project for the three Ishiro Honda films in this set, says that he detected a total of about 15 to 18 editorial differences between the two versions. The most significant of these differences occur during this sequence and toward the end of the movie where there are a number of religious images that were removed. We asked Michael Friend for his take on why Columbia's editors were compelled to make these kinds of changes back in the early 60s. You know, it's interesting to look at the differences in Mothra, for example, which are very minor and yet significant. I mean, you can see why the exotic dance sequence was removed from the American version of H-Man. That's pretty obvious. But with Mothra, it, it is more of a kind of an ideological blindness. I mean, I think the editors did not feel that the audience was particularly interested in getting into a deeper message. And it's not a very extensive difference. It's just a subtle hint in a way. But it, it really is part of the Honda signature, I think. So um, having that available now, I think, is a wonderful thing for audiences, especially for anybody who wants to look at these films more deeply. I always wondered about these kind of scenes with foreigners. Sometimes the foreigners speak English to the Japanese and vice versa, and yet no one misses a beat, like they all perfectly understand each other. Yet it's so unnatural. And the wise old Rolisikin knows all about the dreaded vampire plant. The plant itself was silly enough, but the name is a real gem. Producer Tomoyuki Tanaka scored a major publicity coup when he cast the twin sister act known as the Peanuts as the Small Beauties. Hideko and Tsukiko Ito, no relation to Jerry Ito, are identical twins born in 1941 in Nagoya. Their given names mean sun and moon. And while they were still in high school, they were discovered by a talent scout while singing in a nightclub. And they were brought to Tokyo where they became the first clients of Watanabe Productions, a major talent agency. In 1959, their act was a big hit at the Nichigeki Theater, Tokyo's answer to Radio City, and soon thereafter they released their first single, Pretty Flower, which was a huge hit. By the time they retired in 1975, the Peanuts had appeared in numerous films and TV shows. They had released 25 albums and 78 singles. They played the Small Beauties three times, of course, reprising their roles in Mothra vs. Godzilla and Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster. 
There actually was another twin sister act in Japan at that time called the Robin Sisters, but they sang traditional Japanese Enka music, not pop like the Peanuts, so they weren't considered for the roles. The Ito sisters, though, were really tailor-made for the part. Mothra also gained the Peanuts a brief bit of international fame, and a few years later they appeared on American TV shows like The Ed Sullivan Show and The Danny Kaye Show. So what's it like to co-star with two 30-centimeter tall women who speak in unison? Well, because the fairies are a special effect, the Peanuts shot their scenes separately and didn't interact much with the full-sized cast. But here's an excerpt from a 1999 interview with Professor Chujo himself, Hiroshi Koizumi, where he talked about acting with the miniature ladies. I actually didn't work at all with them during the shoot. When I had a scene with them, there were always dolls to help set my eye line instead of the actual peanuts. When we filmed a scene where we're supposed to be together, the peanuts lines were played back on a tape recorder and I pretended to talk with them. During the production of Mothra, the studio had the toughest time clearing the peanuts schedule to make them available for the shoot. It was the height of their popularity and they were so busy. I can only imagine how much their enormous name value at that time contributed to the success of the famous Song of Mothra. I believe the success of the movie was directly tied to the Peanuts' appearance in the film. I understand. We must really assure them that no harm would come to them. Well, you probably knew that Nelson was up to no good, what with his condescending attitude and his entourage of thugs, but now he shows his true colors. Not sure if those are the same dolls that Koizumi talked about as stand-ins for the Peanuts, but in any case, they certainly aren't very convincing. I don't think you realize the importance of this. Some writers who've covered this film have likened the Relisikans' bombing of Infant Island and Nelson's subsequent kidnapping of the fairies to America's bombing of Japan and the occupation and forced westernizing of that country. We don't know for sure if Ishiro Honda viewed the film this way, but what's interesting is that no matter how badly they're treated, the small beauty's spirit is never broken. Here, Nelson manhandles and threatens to abduct the girls, but when they're set free, they're still friendly and cheerful and wave goodbye. And even when they're forced to work as basically a circus act, they don't lose their faith in Mothra, and in fact, they subversively use Nelson's stage show as a way to sing their telepathic calls to Mothra. But they never play the victim card, and Honda tended to put female characters at the moral center of his genre films. A woman often had the power to make a choice that would affect the outcome of the world, and in this movie, the small beauties play that pivotal role. The Peanuts were quite young at this time. They celebrated their 20th birthdays during the shooting of the movie, and Toho threw a big party for them. Director Honda really enjoyed working with them and found them to be total professionals, not prima donnas at all, despite their skyrocketing fame. He considered them good actresses and was pleased that speaking in unison was no problem for them, because they already did it quite often in real life. The only noticeable physical difference between the two women was that Emi Ito had a mole next to her left eye, and to keep their identical twin image intact, Yumi Ito would always have a mole drawn on her face. Director Honda supposedly had constant trouble telling them apart. Originally, there were four fairies in the story, but screenwriter Sekizawa reduced it to two. And originally, the fairies were supposed to be 60 centimeters tall, but Sekizawa thought that would make it difficult for the art department to build things like the oversized grass and trees used here to make the fairies seem tiny, so he reduced their size to 30 centimeters. As we mentioned earlier, in the original story, the reporter Fukuda is not on this expedition. He goes to Infant Island alone later on. When he's there, the natives tell him the legend of Infant Island, which has a Christian-like mythology to it. 
In this story, the world was created by Ajima, the male god of eternal night, and Ajiko, the goddess of daylight. The god and goddess conceive a giant glowing egg. Then the two gods give birth to a pair of humans who reproduced and populated the island. Then, finally, the two gods conceived a clutch of smaller eggs, which hatched caterpillars that turned into moths and flew away. Long story short, this enraged the god Ajima, who condemned all living things he created to die, then ripped his own body into four pieces and perished. Broken-hearted, the goddess Ajiko committed suicide by tearing her own body into four pieces, which then became four small, immortal girls, who are dedicated to serve Mothra, the peace-loving creature of the giant egg. This elaborate mumbo-jumbo backstory for the infant islanders would have required massive exposition, and it was widely deleted by Sekizawa. Yeah, this is a major difference from the Finnish film, which does not provide any background on the natives and how they came under the protection of Mothra and the small beauties. This English-language dossier briefly shown on screen says that Nelson headed an expedition to the Amazon in 1954 and tried to kidnap natives there. This would have been difficult to read in a movie theater back in 1961, but it's a small clue that Nelson is in the business of exploiting primitive people for personal gain. There's little other information about Nelson other than his age, 30, and that he's rich. According to that dossier, even his nationality isn't known. He may not even be Relisican. Still, none of this really figures into the story, and Nelson's background remains appropriately mysterious. Hiroshi Koizumi would reprise his role as Professor Chujo 42 years later in Godzilla Tokyo SOS, one of several movies in which Godzilla and Mothra do battle. And he said it felt strange to him that the twin fairies in that film were played by different actresses than the Peanuts. At the time Mothra was made, with the Japanese movie industry at its commercial apex, it wasn't unusual for Koizumi to appear in ten movies in one year. Science fiction was just a small part of his career, but he always gave his characters an air of credibility and likability, from the pilot in Godzilla Raids Again to the many scientists he played, though he admits that, unlike his studious characters, he wasn't somebody who read very much back then, as he was too busy working. I was going to tell Harada about it, but Nelson was always there. I just didn't want Nelson to know. I see. Frankie Sakai made his film debut in 1953 in a movie called Quay. He made more than 180 films in his career, and his last movie was in 1997. In 1961, the year that Mothra was released, Sakai appeared in eight movies overall. Sakai attended Keio University and he had planned on becoming a lawyer, but he became fascinated with jazz instead. Around 1950, he formed a band called Frankie Sakai and his City Slickers, the name obviously a tribute to Spike Jones's band. Though he started out as a musician, Sakai eventually became one of the major faces of Japanese comedy during the 50s and 60s and beyond along with Hisaya Morishige, Hitoshi Ueki, and Kiyoshi Atsumi. He adopted the name Frankie while performing in clubs during the Japanese occupation. Sakai started his movie career at Nikatsu, making jazzy musical comedies. Over the years, he made films at numerous studios and also starred in TV variety shows, hosted a quiz show program, and acted in TV dramas from the late 1950s through the early 90s. He was from a family of samurai retainers in Kagoshima, and he was reportedly a Christian. <laughs> That's right. Put them in there. Boss! There's someone! Some of the island natives are played by Japanese actors with dark body makeup. In today's world, the filmmakers probably would be criticized for something like this, but at the time, nobody probably thought twice about it. And we bring this up because, ironically, one of the three original story writers, Zenei Hota, wanted Mothra to include an anti-discrimination message not just against discrimination based on race, but also based even on a person's size. 
This is where the idea originated that the authorities would sanction Nelson's enslavement of the small beauties because they're not really human. The way the natives are gunned down here is pretty cruel, surprisingly so for a Honda film. Still, it keeps things somewhat clean as there is very little bloodshed. In the original story, the reporter Fukuda remained on the island for quite some time. He is awakened one night by the sound of gunfire and he witnesses Nelson and his men kidnapping the small beauties. And later he observes the natives egg hatching ritual. The reporter's newspaper actually sends a boat to bring him back from the island. In 1961, the same year that this film came out, both Mothra and Frankie Sakai made cameo appearances in a film titled Cheers, Mr. Awamori, which starred Q Sakamoto of the song Sukiyaki fame. In that film, there's a chase scene with gangsters running through a movie studio lot, presumably Toho, and the chase leads into the special effects prop room where the Mothra prop comes to life and startles everybody. Five years. Five years. Takashi Shimura was in most of Ashiro Honda's early films, including the first film Honda ever directed, The Blue Pearl, in 1951, a documentary-like drama about female pearl divers in the Iseishima area. Honda liked Shimura's natural, casual style of acting, which he felt was suited to his directing style. Even though he did a lot of small parts, Honda says Shimura was very pragmatic about his film work. About this, Honda said, when a role didn't suit him, he would let me know he wanted to take a pass on it. He wouldn't take just any role. Even if the fairies are forced to sing in Nelson's stage show against their will, they must have thought that show business wasn't that bad of a racket after all. In Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, the fairies return to Japan of their own free will to perform in a TV show, and they appear to have attained a certain amount of celebrity status by that time. Producer Tomiyuki Tanaka wrote in a memoir that the idea for the female perspective in Mothra was originally suggested by a fellow producer during the early planning stages for this film. And Tanaka said this inspired him to dream up the idea for the small beauties, who would assume the role of the guardian spirits of a South Seas island. Tanaka said that he was at first taken a little bit aback by the approach of the three writers, Shinichiro Nakamura, Takehiko Fukunaga, and Zenie Hota, because their approach was a bit highbrow. But soon Tanaka saw that they would help him achieve his goal of creating a modern fairy tale. Tanaka said that Mothra was, quote, a very different movie that served to fill the niche left open for all the female fans, end quote. The success of Mothra was a key reason for Toho's decision to revive Godzilla after a six-year hiatus, and in 1962, King Kong vs. Godzilla was produced. The parallels between Nelson and King Kong's Carl Denham are none too subtle. You can see a number of situations and plot elements and even scenes and individual shots that echo King Kong. But Kong, of course, connects with the audience on an emotional level that Mothra does not. We can sympathize with Mothra's quest to rescue the fairies, but it's not a romantic quest, and it certainly doesn't end in tragedy, so it, it doesn't tug at the heartstrings in the way Kong's story does. In the late 50s and early 60s, there were a lot of Japanese films that touched on the issues of commercialism and exploitation and greed as did many American films of the time. Ishiro Honda would touch on this subject again the following year, 1962, in King Kong vs. Godzilla, a movie that's even much more of a hybrid of comedy and monster movie than this one is. And in 1964, as Mothra vs. Godzilla, you have the character Torahata, who's essentially an, another version of Nelson, who cuts a shady deal to take possession of Mothra's egg and turn it into an amusement park attraction. 
Torahata doesn't steal or kidnap the twin fairies, but he does try to buy them. This is the song of Mothra, which has become something of a pop culture reference. Even many people who've never seen this movie seem to have heard the song. The lyrics in the Small Beauty's fictional native tongue were written by Koji Yuki, although it's been misreported in the past that Ishiro Honda wrote the lyrics under a pen name. The lyrics, other than Mothra, mean something like, quote, Mothra, come fast and help us. Restore peace to us. The lyrics were written in Japanese and then translated into Indonesian by a foreign exchange student at Tokyo University. The score for Mothra is by Yuji Koseki, who was born in 1908 to a prominent family of tailors in Fukushima City. Koseki's father was a record collector, so he grew up listening to a lot of music, and he started singing and playing various instruments and dabbling in composing while he was in grade school. Koseki studied business in college and joined a local harmonica band, taught himself to compose in his own time by reading books. Now, as the orchestra plays in the theater here, it can't help but make me think that this is emblematic of the score for this film. While the music complements the film well enough, somehow it never feels like it's part of the film. I'm, I'm not sure if it's the manner of recording or just a characteristic of Koseki's orchestration, but the score sounds more like it's being played to the film from a theater orchestra pit rather than being integrated into the film. This feeling is especially strong during the Mothra Caterpillar's assault on Tokyo. It's an unenviable task to stand in the long shadow cast by Akira Fukube, the composer most closely identified with this genre, but Koseki still does an admirable job. In the original story, there was a scene like this one, and the music stopped and the girls continued singing, and Professor Chujo reads their lips through a pair of opera glasses. That's how he first detects the word Mothra and starts trying to figure out what it means. It's pretty amazing that anyone beyond the first row would have been able to see these little 30-centimeter tall girls on stage, but no one seems to be squinting. Koseki secretly wanted to attend music school, but a composing career was considered impractical, so he went back to work at his uncle's bank instead. He continued his self-education in classical music and began submitting some of his compositions to composers for their advice. In 1929, when he was 21 years old, Koseki won an award in a competition sponsored by the British Musicians Organization and Columbia of Great Britain, and this made him possibly the first Japanese composer to gain recognition overseas. The next year, his symphony, Revenge of the Earth, played in Tokyo, and in 1931, he was hired by Columbia, Japan as a composer, and he then moved to Tokyo. Working for Columbia, Koseki wrote a lot of very successful pop tunes. His musical career was quite diverse, covering pop, radio dramas, and stage plays. His most famous film scores were from Mothra and the anime film Monotaro, God Warrior of the Sea. Koseki died in 1989 at the age of 81. Koseki's musical score helps establish the fantasy feel of this film. It's a little bit like King Kong, where the Skull Islanders play their ritual music with primitive-style instruments augmented by Max Steiner's music. Here, the Infant Islanders perform a Hollywood-style dance number, complete with orchestra. We know the orchestra really isn't there, and perhaps the music we hear isn't really what the Islanders are hearing, but a heightened rendition of it. It's rather surreal, and the music is an integral part of that fantasy reality of this movie. And as you touched on, Ed, by 1960, Akira Ifukube was well-established as the premier composer for Toho science fiction films. His scores for Godzilla and Rodan and the Mysterians and so on were dark and mysterious and sad and even unsettling, but Ifukube declined to write the score for Mothra because he felt he couldn't write appropriate music for the Peanuts, a pop group. He probably made the right call because the lighter tone of this film would have been an odd match for Ifukube's style. See you again. You'd better look out, had I indeed. 
Clark Nelson's right-hand man, the interesting-looking fellow with the wispy mustache, is played by Satoshi Tetsu Nakamura, who was born in Vancouver and was reportedly half-Canadian and half-Japanese. Because Nakamura was bilingual, he was sometimes cast in English-speaking roles in Japanese-American co-productions. For instance, the 1961 film The Manster, in which Nakamura played a scientist who creates a two-headed monster. Now, that film also starred Jerry Ito, by the way. And in None But the Brave, the 1965 World War II film directed by Frank Sinatra that used a lot of Toho Studios' talent, including Eiji Tsuburaya's special effects. Nakamura, by the way, also serves as the English-language dialogue coach for the Japanese actors in that film. Nakamura was in a lot of Toho sci-fi films, as well as Toei's The Last Dinosaur. And in 1971, interestingly, he played the Japanese ambassador in the Terrence Young western Red Sun, starring Charles Bronson and Toshiro Mifune. Just a minute. The camera, let's have it. I have had all the publicity I need. Nelson's tall, Caucasian-looking henchman is played by Osman Johnny Youssef, who was Turkish. He was part of a small community of Turks who immigrated to Japan prior to World War II. Youssef's claim to fame was that he was one of the principals of the Kokusai Agency, or International Agency, which specialized in casting foreign-looking actors in Japanese films. A few years later, Toho would import bona fide American actors like Nick Adams and Russ Tamblin to Japan to star in films like Frankenstein Conquers the World and War of the Gargantuas. But the international cast of Mothra is mostly made up of amateur actors, expatriates, and business people who were living in Japan at that time. What was it like to be one of those lucky foreigners who co-starred with Japanese monsters? How did they get into the business? Well, for answers, we asked Clifford Harrington, an American freelance journalist living in Tokyo back then, who also did bit parts in movies. Clifford's an extra in two scenes later in this film when the action moves to Newkirk City. Uh, in the Army, I had seen a film company working in Yokohama, which was not far from Tokyo. I made an acquaintance uh, of the director, and he had invited me to come out to the Nikatsu studio. And while I was there, a fellow came up to me, a Turkish fellow, and said, Are you working today? I said, No, I'm just visiting. He said, Could you give me some of your time? I need one more person as an extra in the movie. So I worked, and he paid me some money. Then I got in touch with the agencies that hired foreigners to appear as extras and sometimes to be given speaking part in Japanese movies. And I lived in the YMCA, and I was working on magazine stories, and I would get called to go out and work in a movie as an extra, and I got some speaking parts. Johnny Youssef, or Osman Youssef, a Turk, was uh, one of the people in the Kokusai Engisha Asenjo, uh, the international agency that called people to work in studios. Another was a Filipino fellow named Pedro. Sometimes I would work for him, but I preferred to work with Johnny Youssef because his agency paid more money. Honda's films often show this kind of production number, usually in the context of some kind of ritualistic dance. Extras were usually garnered from dance schools or from Toho's own Nichigeki dance troupe. It's the Busby Berkeley side of Ishiro Honda. The egg hatching sequence is another place where certain material was edited out of the movie for its U.S. release. The Japanese version of this sequence is longer, while the U.S. version is faster paced and focuses more on the egg hatching. It's one instance where the pacing of the English language version is a bit swifter and builds a bit more dramatic tension. 
In the original story, The Glowing Fairies and Mothra, the character of Michiko Hanemura was not a photographer. Instead, she was Professor Chujo's assistant and also the leader of a student protest group that unsuccessfully pressures Nelson to release the fairies. The student protesters in the story are significant because in early 1960, just months before the story was written, there were violent demonstrations and riots in Japan protesting the ratification of a controversial security treaty between Japan and the U.S. Things got so tense that President Eisenhower had to cancel a visit to Tokyo. These protests were used as a thematic backdrop to several films at the time, including Nagisa Oshima's Cruel Story of Youth. The original story treatment for Mothra mirrored these real-life events with a controversy about a similar treaty between Japan and Rulisika, but Sekizawa pretty much deleted this political aspect of the story when he wrote his screenplay. Sekizawa's script tended to be rather light-hearted. His emphasis was on entertainment, which explains why he deleted some of the political content that was in the original story. With Mothra, Sekizawa introduced comedy into Japanese science fiction movies, and many of his 60s films would have a comedic touch. Sekizawa is probably the writer most closely associated with Toho's science fiction movies of the 1960s, as well as episodes for science fiction TV shows and animation. Sekizawa wrote other kinds of movies as well, but considered himself a specialist in science fiction stories. This is a nice lyrical piece that gives a break from the repetitious nature of the Mothra song, and it's another chance for the Peanuts to show their talents. It's peaceful and totally non-threatening, a nice contrast to the scene of Mothra about to destroy the ocean liner. Despite the carnage, you get the idea that destruction is not Mothra's aim, unlike your standard monster on the loose. And it's a beautifully constructed sequence. The music, the vocals, the lighting, and the excellent use of the color widescreen photography, which was still a relatively new phenomenon in Japan. Remember that Godzilla, which was shot in black and white in the standard ratio, was just seven years earlier. While it seems to take Mothra quite a while to reach Japan, in the original story, Mothra's journey at sea was extremely protracted. In fact, it takes so long that the ships and satellites tracking Mothra actually notice the caterpillar growing and growing during the course of the journey. Well, as we said, the political tensions between Japan and Rulisika were a big element of the original story. And in that scenario, the success of Nelson's show at the ferries in Tokyo helps cool some of the hostility between the two countries. And there were supposed to be scenes of the Japanese prime minister and the Rulisikan ambassador hanging out backstage and doing photo ops with the small beauties. Even though most all of those types of scenes were wisely cut out, for they certainly would have put a damper on the light fantasy feel of this film, the movie still retains a rather anti-Rolisican and, by extension, anti-American slant, although it's handled in a rather cartoonish fashion sometimes, especially in the way Jerry Ito plays Nelson with such broad, evil strokes. For instance, Rolisica is the country responsible for conducting the nuclear tests on Infant Island, which was supposed to be uninhabited, and Nelson's restrictions on press coverage of the expedition is obviously an attempt to cover up Rolisica's responsibility for what happened there. So the Rolisicans exploit defenseless primitive people for atomic tests, then exploit them for commercial gain, then refuse to recognize their basic human rights. Incidentally, in the original story, the Rolisican government not only refused to force Nelson to give up the ferries, but the Rolisican ambassador sends a naval fleet to Japan to protect Nelson and his property from Mothra. In any case, it's not a flattering portrait of Nelson or his country and by extension of America, but again, it's handled so broadly that it's not terribly offensive. Listen closely and you might recognize that the voice of Nelson's thug here is dubbed by Peter Fernandez, the voice of Speed Racer and one of the principal voice actors at New York's Tetra Sound Studio in the 60s. 
Titra did the English dubbing for this and many foreign films, including many Toho movies, and although dubbing doesn't usually win a lot of praise, their work is generally considered the best. The reporter played by Frankie Sakai was named Zenichiro Fukuda. This name was a combination of the names of the three authors of the original story. Now in the Japanese version, Frankie Sakai's character has the nickname of Snapping Turtle, while for English-speaking audiences, he is nicknamed Bulldog. Both emphasize his tenacious nature as a reporter. In this scene, we get to learn why he's called the Snapping Turtle. He's cute and friendly, but tough when needed. This fight is about as violent as it gets in a Japanese fantasy film of this period. Fight consists mostly of shoving, missed punches, an elbow jab, and a newspaper swat. And at the end, the bad guys lick their wounds. That's Honda's way of getting rid of the bad guys without the hero beating them up or being the aggressor. The bad guys mostly do it to themselves, and the hero is only defending himself. There'll be so many innocent people who would get killed or hurt if Motra comes here. Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, which came out in 1964, is considered the moment when Godzilla became a hero and the first time Godzilla ever defended Japan from other monsters. But Mothra is really the first true Japanese monster hero. By the end of this film, there's a reconciliation that takes place between mankind and the monster as the fairies are returned and Mothra is allowed to fly away peacefully. Mothra's transformation to full-fledged hero took another step in the sequel Mothra vs. Godzilla, as Mothra somewhat reluctantly defends Japan from Godzilla. The transformation is completed in Ghidra as Mothra brokers a truce between Godzilla and Rodan so the three monsters can join together and defend the Earth. Many Toho genre films have a stock scientist character who seems to excel in a number of scientific fields. Here, Dr. Harada, who studies the effects of radiation, just happens also to be working on a type of material that can block the transmission of telepathic waves. Lucky thing. Dr. Harada is played by Ken Uehara, a prominent actor in Japan whose career spanned more than 50 years. Uehara was born in 1909 and made his film debut in the 1930s. During the 40s and 50s, Uehara was one of Japan's most prominent leading men and starred in dozens of movies, often working for some of Japan's most prominent directors. Uehara and Hiroshi Koizumi became friends while making this movie, and they would often play golf together. Koizumi also remembers that he bought a second-hand two-tone car from Uehara, and Koizumi was especially proud of the car because Uehara had owned it. Ken Uehara was also the father of actor and singer Yuzo Kayama, a mega-popular star for the young generation in Japan throughout the 1960s. It's heading directly for Tokyo. Attack! Yeah. I'm sort of sorry for Mothra. Huh? Well, if Nelson had returned the girls, Ishiro Honda preferred to have a triangle of three main characters in his movies, usually two men and one woman. Sometimes this allowed for a bit of dramatic tension, but Honda just felt that three characters created a nice balance for the protagonists and allowed the actors to play contrasting roles. Honda said, quote, A movie's usually an hour and a half to two hours. All the drama has to take place in that limited time range. If there are too many main characters, it becomes difficult to cover all the feelings each character has. These scenes of Mothra at sea were filmed outside in the newly constructed big pool on the Toho lot. The sky was painted on a huge concrete wall behind the pool. You can see that the wall is not completely smooth. The natural lighting is very pleasing, making a nice color palette, and the perspective filming really adds a sense of realism. Because of the way this scene was edited in the American version, it's never quite clear what the military is doing. At first you think, why are they dropping this stuff so far from Mothra? 
Only after the jets fire their missiles do you get the idea that these are oil drums meant to catch fire. The lens flare and the rainbow here is a nice touch. And the planes all move beautifully and nary a wire is visible. Mothra, both in its caterpillar form and later as the adult flying moth, was created with a variety of props made in different scales and with different functions, all depending on the scene. The huge caterpillar prop that's used in this scene, and later in the dam destruction scene, was created strictly for use in the water. Despite the fact that Mothra is a very benevolent creature and, and hardly a terrifying creature, the publicity department at Columbia promoted this film like a typical giant monster on the loose film. Studio ads for the movie showed a fierce close-up of an insect head with threatening eyes and pincher-like mandibles and claw-like appendages with sharp teeth flanking the mouth. The monster's head is surrounded by fighter jets, a few of which seem to be plummeting from the sky in a tailspin. And the monster's head looms menacingly over giant letters spelling out Mothra in a sea of flames. And then to add a little sex appeal, two scantily clad female figures with exotic headdresses seem to be seductively calling to the beast. The whole thing looks a lot darker and scarier than the film it's meant to advertise. Well, Columbia's theatrical trailers for Mothra hardly showed the monster at all. The emphasis was on the small beauties and their mysterious link with the monster. Not showing the monster was probably the safest way to, to preserve the illusion created by the print ads, and perhaps they were afraid that a giant caterpillar wouldn't scare anybody. The press book for Mothra is a real interesting oddity. The synopsis printed is not for the film, but instead it summarizes the original Japanese story of the Golden Fairies and Mothra, and it even refers to the girls as the Elinas. But by far the most interesting part of the press book is the advice given to theater owners to promote the film, often referred to as seed-selling slants. Now, Mothra's press book had the following uh, gems in it, these suggestions for, for things you could do. Have the police or armed services provide a weapons display in the lobby with the caption, these weapons couldn't stop Mothra. They said wherever wrecking or construction is going on in the city, put up signs saying Mothra was here. And then uh, this one's great. Send two attractive street ballet girls dressed in abbreviated space suits through the main business district and in the vicinity of schools and play areas. Signs on their backs can say, Mothra, the world's most fantastic love story. And then there's my favorite seat-selling slant of all time. Arrange a display of radioactive materials in your lobby with a Geiger counter to demonstrate its power. Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's go out and buy some lethal substances and expose all of our customers to them. Well, let's go down there and find out. Let's go. This is one of the best ways to sell the realism of a miniature shot, to mat real people into the scene so that people interact with the miniature. It's a great set, and the high-speed photography slows down the water movement to create a sense of scale. The destruction of the dam is one of the most exciting special effects sequences in all the classic age Honda Tsuburaya films, and it also showcases the work of editor Yuji Taira, who cut together Tsuburaya's effects with Honda's live action to create a riveting disaster scene in which people's lives are visibly on the line, which is something rare in these films where the destruction often occurs in seemingly uninhabited areas and is often quite impersonal. The live action location footage in this sequence was shot at Kurobe Dam. There's a very interesting story about the building and destruction of the miniature dam that sheds light on special effects director Eiji Tsuburaya and his working relationship with his crew. At a production meeting to plan the shooting of this sequence, Eiji Tsuburaya told his staff that he wanted four big water tanks to create the raging flood when the dam bursts. But Yasuyuki Inoue, Tsuburaya's chief assistant special effects art director, had bigger plans. 
Inoue thought the scene would be much more effective if there were 16 tanks full of flowing water. There were only eight tanks available on the Toho Studios lot then, so Inoue built four new tanks in his spare time. He ended up with a total of 12. The 12 tanks would hold a combined 4,320 gallons. Inoue and his crew built the miniature set of the dam, which was in 1 50th scale, but still quite large, four meters high, and when Eiji Tsuburaya came to inspect it, he was quite pleased. But Inoue had hidden all the extra water tanks behind a backdrop, and when Tsuburaya discovered them, he became quite upset. The tanks were nearly up to the ceiling in the back of the soundstage. Tsuburai became even more upset when he saw that the miniature mountains around the dam were fixed to the set with concrete. Inoue had built them that way so the mountains would withstand the flooding and not just wash away, but Tsuburai was mad because he couldn't rearrange a set so he had less flexibility as to where to place his camera for filming. Inoue remembers that Tsuburai pointed at the water tanks and yelled, this is why we always have to spend too much on our sets. But Inoue just quietly told Tsuburaya to wait, and soon it would become very clear why he'd gone to such extremes. What Inoue didn't say right away was that he designed the dam so that it would realistically crumble under the weight of the water pressure, meaning that it wouldn't collapse all at once. Tsuburaya was still angry when they started filming the scene, and on the first try, only a small amount of water came through a small hole. The second try, the water made a bigger hole, but it still wasn't enough to crumble the dam. Inoue and his crew weakened the upper part of the dam, and it finally fell in spectacular fashion. What could be more heroic than saving a baby from certain death? Certainly this scene is perhaps a bit contrived, but it does help make the point that a lot of innocent lives are being put at risk by Mothra's presence. As the water was gushing out, Tsurai yelled, more water, more water, even after the tanks were empty. The tension between the two men was suddenly broken, and when it was over, Tsuburaya poked Inoue playfully with his index and middle fingers, a gesture that showed that he really liked Inoue. On subsequent movies, Inoue and Tsuburaya's relationship was one of strong trust and respect, and Inoue says Tsuburaya no longer questioned his methods. Unfortunately, Tsuburaya didn't change the camera position even after the dam didn't burst on the first two takes, so in the end, he edited portions of all three takes together to create what we see in the movie. The success of Toho's science fiction movies was both a blessing and a curse for director Ishiro Honda. Today he's remembered almost exclusively for his monster films, but he began his career as a serious director of documentaries and dramas before he was regrettably typecast as a sci-fi filmmaker. The son of a Buddhist monk, Ishiro Honda was born in 1911 in Yamagata. As a young boy, he had a strong interest in drawing and at first he wanted to become an artist, but by junior high school his focus had shifted to movies. At age 22, he entered the assistant director program at PCL Studios, where he learned every aspect of filmmaking from arranging equipment to writing scripts, editing, camera work, and so on. Honda's mentor was Kajiro Yamamoto, an established director whose many protégés included the famous filmmakers Senkichi Taniguchi and Akira Kurosawa. In 1938, Honda's career was interrupted by the war between Japan and China. He was drafted and would end up serving three tours of duty over a span of eight years. After his discharge from the military, Honda directed several documentaries in the late 40s and early 50s before finally receiving his first directorial assignment for Toho Studios with the drama The Blue Pearl in 1951. Over the next few years, he directed several dramatic films as well as two war movies, Eagle of the Pacific and Farewell Rabal. These two films marked the first collaborations between Honda and special effects master Eiji Tsuburaya, and they helped set the stage for their work together on Godzilla in 1954, the film that would forever shape the destiny of both of their careers. By the early 1960s, Ishiro Honda was almost exclusively a director of science fiction and fantasy films. 
Jerry Ito recalls Honda telling him during the making of Mothra that he was already growing weary of monster films and he dreamed of making an epic human story along the lines of the Red Shoes. But suppressing his personal ambitions, Honda continued on the career path that Toho laid out for him, producing some of his best films during this period, such as Mothra vs. Godzilla and Atragon. Honda's close friend Akira Kurosawa urged him to leave the studio system and become an independent, but Honda was not a filmmaker who developed projects on his own. Despite whatever misgivings he may have had about the projects he was working on, Honda was a dedicated company man who did as Toho asked. Tough economic times for the movie industry eventually led to the dismantling of the studio system in 1970, and after filming Space Amoeba, Honda abruptly quit for reasons which he kept to himself. The next few years saw him work sparingly on TV productions, but aside from a brief return to Toho to direct Terror of Mechagodzilla, he enjoyed his life in retirement. But in 1979, Akira Kurosawa asked Honda during a golf outing if he wouldn't consider helping him on his upcoming production of Kagemusha. In his typical self-effacing style, Honda replied affirmatively, if you don't think I would get in the way. From that point on, these two lifelong friends shared some of the happiest years of their lives, making films together for another 13 plus years until Honda succumbed to a sudden illness and died on February 28, 1993. In Shinichi Sekizawa's screenplay for Mothra, the final third of the movie was quite a bit different from the finished film. But after filming had already started, Toho decided to drastically change the ending of the movie, and basically everything from this point forward would have been significantly different if Toho had stuck with Sekizawa's script. For instance, Nelson and his gang simply don't just tie up little Shinji, but instead they kidnap him and take him with them. Sekizawa's script ended quite differently with a final showdown between Mothra and the villain Nelson in the mountains of Japan and Mothra rescuing the fairies and Nelson plunging to his death. The ending of the film is more upbeat, but it's also far less interesting because essentially Nelson just gets nabbed by the cops. Tsuburaya's low camera angles sell the scale, create a sense of distance, and it makes for beautiful composition. Here and in many other parts of these scenes, live action is optically composited with miniature elements to create the illusion that there are people in this miniature world. Probably there are more such shots in this film than any other Honda Tsuburaya collaboration. The miniature planes in this film are operated so well, they shoot rapidly through each scene and move quite steadily, never breaking formation and staying steady even when deploying their weapons. And once in a while we are treated to some innovative aerial perspective shots of the sets which show off the massive amount of detail. Here a gigantic monster suit is shown destroying the village with product placement for Biley's orange drink. The suit scale is so large that it allows for much larger sets and therefore much more detail to be included. These sets were built very precisely to match the actual locations where the action was to be taking place. This scene takes place in the Kokushido area, an old time main artery that leads out of the center of Tokyo. This was suburban Tokyo, so the Toho special effects staff went out and took lots of pictures and tried to very precisely replicate this area. It was common for the staff to take pictures whenever they were out and about and saw an interesting place since one day they might want to use it as the setting for a movie. Mothra looks positively enormous in these scenes and here's another realistic detail. The monster is too wide for some of the narrow side streets so even when it tries to move down the middle of the street it can't help but push buildings aside. These scenes really illustrate just how many miniature city sets were made for this film. I can't think of another Tsuburaya film with quite this many miniature setups, especially ones that are so elaborate. And here comes the Mothra suit again. 
the set is so large that you can do some impressive destruction, but one of the drawbacks to the suit is that its movement is not very natural, especially after seeing the perfect undulating motion of the motorized model. The Mothra suit is the largest monster suit ever made by Toho. It was more than seven meters long and required five or six people inside to move it. The suit was built at 125th scale, about the same size as Godzilla, and in fact, the two suit actors who played Godzilla in 1954, Haruo Nakajima and Katsumi Tezuka, were inside the Mothra suit here, leading the pack along with several young staff members of Toho Special Effects art staff who were drafted into the job. The destruction of Shibuya Station is a fine example of the miniature work by Yasuyuki Inoue and Toho Special Effects art staff. The attack on Shibuya is another place where about 40 seconds worth of special effects destruction shots were cut out of the movie when Columbia first released it in 1962. Here where Mothra pushes the structures onto the tanks, that's a small hand-operated model of the Caterpillar. This particular model has a narrower, more oval-shaped face than the other Mothra models. It also has a series of small legs on the bottom of the body, which none of the other models have. The advantage of having such a huge Mothra prop or suit is the scale of the miniatures. But as you said, the movement of the suit isn't always 100% believable. It kind of has that two guys in a horse suit gait to it. I got an idea. Pull out of here now and turn. Here's an establishing shot of the miniature set for the Tokyo Tower area. Back in 1961, this area consisted largely of small one and two story residences and neighborhood businesses. Since all the scenes on this set were shot with the motorized Mothra model, only one scale could be shown, so the benefit of cutting back and forth in the previous scenes that gave such a large scale feeling is somewhat lost. This is a great establishing shot. Live action of the real tower base on the left, while a miniature element is seamlessly composited on the right. Your eye is trained to accept this setup as if it's real, but in a moment when we cut back to this shot, Mothra moves into the frame on the right. As a result, Mothra's presence in this scene is completely believable. The Tokyo Tower model was built by the Toida Metalworks Company, which had previously built the bridge destroyed by Rodan, the flying monster, a few years back. Toida built many large tin models for special effects films and continues to do so today. The Tokyo Tower model was constructed from blueprints created by Toho special effects staff from photographs and research of the structure, but the blueprints only showed one side of the tower. The Toida model makers had to figure out the angles and so forth so that they could build the other three sides. Tokyo Tower is located in the Minato section of Tokyo. It was opened in 1958, just three years before this film was released, so it was still a novelty and it made sense for screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa to change the location of Mothra's cocooning from the Diet Building, Japan's House of Parliament, where this scene took place in the original treatment for the film. Since Tokyo Tower was so new, it was a natural target for the filmmakers. To make the miniature model, the art staff asked for the real blueprints, but when they couldn't obtain them, they made their own set from photos. These blueprints were closely guarded so that no competing studio would be able to benefit from Toho's hard work. Rumor has it that they were surreptitiously snuck out and used during the production of Gamera the Invincible at Dai Studios in 1965. Mothra falls and, and the way it hits the ground you can almost feel the impact. This is one of the many benefits of filming with real props. This kind of small detail is hard to replicate in animation of any type. It might have been subliminal on the filmmaker's part, but King Kong certainly provided some inspiration for Mothra's attempt to climb the Tokyo Tower. 
It all came full circle in 1967 when King Kong and Mechanicong climbed Tokyo Tower at the climax of King Kong Escapes, with the robot falling to its demise. And the music here really complements the visuals well. We hear the now familiar Mothra theme, followed by a dreamy flourish of harp. These shots of the cocoon silk being spun into the air are beautiful to watch, almost poetic in execution. Mothra's silk cocoon is a very elegant and believable effect and one of the trademarks of Toho's special effects movies. It was created out of a form of liquid styrofoam called expanded polystyrene, or EPS. With all the different sized props used in this film, the scale of sets varies from scene to scene and sometimes it gets a bit disconcerting. In some places, such as in the Tokyo Tower area, the scale changes are noticeable if you're really paying attention. For example, Mothra is supposed to be 100 meters in body length, while Tokyo Towers is 333 meters tall. Well, when Mothra climbs up the tower, you can tell that his body is at least half the tower's size, so the scale is definitely off. You know, in a strict sense, it's wrong, but dramatically, it wouldn't be right if Mothra was so small that it wouldn't be able to topple the tower. Expressing the story visually was much more important than strict technical accuracy. Not since then. Your attention, please. Special flight number 203. Even though the English dubbing for this film isn't really all that bad, it nevertheless shows how Asians were sometimes portrayed in movies around this time. The voice actors in Japanese monster movies tended to use this kind of stereotypical staccato Asian accent. And there's one scene earlier in the film where Frankie Sakai's character actually says, Ah, so, which probably got quite a laugh in the theaters back then. Of course, Mothra came out not long after Breakfast at Tiffany's with Mickey Rooney playing the bucktooth Mr. Yunioshi. So times have indeed changed. There's a special jet leaving for Alistica this evening. Yes, and you know what that means. It means that we lost our last chance to end this. The cocoon looks totally believable as it thickens. You can see Mothra moving inside, so it's really easy to believe that Mothra is actually alive inside. Has the jet gone? No. Let's get to the airport. It's okay. And more ineptness by the law enforcement authorities. Gee, it's awfully nice of Relisica to so easily offer up these powerful weapons. While it's never officially explained, you can infer that part of the reason for their aid is that they, they probably do realize that Mothra would attack Relisica, so it's probably in their best interest to kill Mothra now. Well, actually, that point was more explicit in the original story. In that version, the Japanese public wants to leave Mothra alone so it'll just hatch and fly away. But the Relisican government fears that Mothra will chase after Nelson to Relisica to get the fairies back, so it's in their best interest to get rid of the monster right here. All the subtext of the original story, the controversy over the mutual protection treaty and the Relisican motive for attacking Mothra in Japan before it can go to Relisica, that's all been dropped. But, you know, since this was a family entertainment for New Year's, this wasn't the ideal time for such strong political commentary, and hence screenwriter Sekizawa's decision to delete these aspects of the story. Here's an interesting optical shot combining a matte painting of the tower, cocoon, and the sky backdrop, a photo of the real city, and matted live-action elements of the military setting up on the rooftops that were shot elsewhere. The 
This film was made during the Cold War years when nuclear testing on land and sea by the U.S. and the Soviets and soon the Chinese was ongoing. Already? One minute remaining. If there was any doubt about what the atomic heat ray cannon represents, these sunglasses, the official wardrobe of the U.S. atomic testing program, should put that to rest. Director Honda was quite concerned about nuclear proliferation and testing, and this fictional weapon is emblematic of those fears. The Relisikans' answer to the Mothra problem is essentially to nuke the monster, and their weapon ends up causing more harm than good, and is probably giving everybody within a 10-mile radius a case of cancer at the same time. Two versions of the atomic heat ray cannon were built, a small model and a large model. One of them was recycled a few years later in Honda's Invasion of Astro Monster. Yeah, I guess the space aliens in that film must have struck a treaty with Releaseka too, since they used those heat ray cannons on Planet X to release Godzilla and Mothra from their force field bubbles. Even before the original Mothra story was written by the three writers, Toho held story meetings to discuss ideas for the film. One early idea that was discussed was for Mothra to emit a ray beam. This was typical of Toho's monsters of the period, and it was also related to the idea that, like Godzilla, Mothra is an atomic monster, somehow affected by the nuclear testing that decimated her home on Beirut Island. Mothra really doesn't have what you'd call superpowers. Its most formidable weapons are the caterpillar's ability to spin a sticky silk cocoon, and the adult's ability to create powerful hurricane force winds with its wings. In Mothra vs. Godzilla, it combines this with poison pollen that asphyxiates Godzilla and renders him powerless. Years later, when Toho brought back the monster in the 1990s and 2000s, they added the ability to shoot rays from Mothra's antennae, and also an energy beam from its body. It could also generate energy reflecting fairy dust from its wings that negated Godzilla's atomic breath. Despite the fact that Mothra has always been smaller and weaker, it remains one of Godzilla's greatest foes because it manages to win the battle with its wits and a few special powers that can exploit Godzilla's weaknesses, despite being unable to overpower him. You know, I would have never taken Clark Nelson for a farmer. I loved the sound of the cows mooing in the background, and I only wish they'd stay here long enough so we could see Nelson riding his tractor and feeding the hogs. But really, there's only enough time for a bit of sinister laughter before our villains have to flee again. <laughs> Mothra would go on to become Toho's second most popular monster after Godzilla, and she returned in many more films, both as a caterpillar and adult moth. In 1992, Godzilla vs. Mothra, a loose remake of 1964's Mothra vs. Godzilla, was the number one domestic grocer at the Japanese box office. In the late 1990s, Toho produced a trilogy of new Mothra movies which were made for child audiences. And in the 2000s, she appeared in three of Toho's newer Godzilla films, including the last one, Godzilla Final Wars. There were three different sized adult Mothras made for the film, each with different capabilities. The hatching was done with this mid-sized model which had more flexible wings. As Mothra takes off, the full-size model creates a huge windstorm and there are some pretty amazing effects here. Blowing away the roof tiles, now that's a Tsurai trademark. 
but they also pull off a few physical effects that are really hard to control. The jeeps bounce off the pipeline in just the right spot, causing a rupture that springs a leak. And here an ambulance is blown backwards into a utility pole that just keels over in the right direction. The mid-sized model wraps up this scene nicely, elegantly flapping its wings as Mothra departs for Relisica. This model is easily distinguished from its larger counterpart by looking at the eyes. The eyes on this one have just a few large facets which have a kind of jeweled look. On the mid-sized Mothra, the thorax is slightly smaller and the wingspan is shorter, creating an overall impression of better balance than the large model. The large adult Mothra, which was built in 1/100 scale, had a wingspan of 2.5 meters. Its wings were huge but much less flexible, so the wing movement is not always as pleasing as the middle-sized models. Its eyes were lit by light bulbs from within, something that would become a trademark of Toho monsters, and the eye surface was made of a clear latex. The smallest of the three models was used just for extreme long shots of Mothra approaching Newkirk City. The way they made Mothra's wings flap involved suspending the model of the monster on wires from an overhead motorized butterfly brace that would open and close, thus creating a flapping motion. The wires were attached to Mothra's wings in the center rather than at the wingtips. This allowed the wings to freely flap at the edges, trailing a bit behind the rest of the wing's movement, and it produced an elegant, realistic flapping motion. <laughs> Hello. I guess you didn't expect me, did you? Not exactly. Harada sent you, right? I was sent, yes. By the Relisican Embassy. As we said before, Toho originally filmed a different ending for Mothra that took place entirely in Japan, but while the film was in production, Columbia Pictures acquired the U.S. distribution rights and Columbia asked Toho to give the film even more of an international feel to increase its marketability in America. So the ending was scrapped and screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa essentially reverted back to the ending in the original Mothra treatment set in the Relisican capital of Newkirk City. So the irony is that the big ending in Relisica was part of the original story, then it was cut out because of budget concerns, then it was put back in at the last minute when foreign capital was infused into the production. The wings on the large-scale Mothra were too stiff to create natural flowing motion, so the mid-sized model was used in many of these long shots. Director Honda regretted that there wasn't enough money to come to the United States to shoot this type of B-roll footage. These shots of the Harbor Freeway interchange in downtown LA and hotels on the cliffs of Santa Monica are taken from stock footage. Then there's also miniatures of the Golden Gate Bridge and Manhattan skyscrapers, so Newkirk City is a hybrid of big city America. Keep an eye on this elderly gentleman. He really puts a lot of effort into his acting in the upcoming scene where Nelson goes berserk. And you have to appreciate the extra effort of the sound effects crew for overdubbing his senior citizen growl here. With this last minute change to the ending where Nelson was originally to be done in by Mothra, a new way to finish off Nelson had to be devised in short order. The resulting scene we have here looks like something put together at the last moment, and it feels uh, probably more awkward than dramatic. 
Personally, I would have liked to have seen a final showdown between Nelson and Mothra, who are, after all, the true adversaries in this story. Nelson upsets the balance of the universe, as it were, by stealing the fairies, and Mothra's quest is to restore that balance. And it would have been nice to see Mothra actually rescue the fairies after all. The ending in the film almost occurs by default. Nelson essentially runs out of places to hide, and his comeuppance really doesn't involve the human heroes or Mothra and there's no dramatic showdown or rescue scene. The ending is somewhat unsatisfying after all that's come before it, but, but having said all that, I absolutely enjoy seeing Toho's rendition of a major American city and Jerry Ito's final scene as Nelson where he completely loses his cool and sinks to stealing an old man's cane. That's priceless. Now that the setting has moved to Rolisica, we can see the large number of foreigners who were working as actors and extras in Japanese productions at this time. One of the most recognizable was Robert Dunham, now here's Bob Dunham in the hat, carrying the box with the fairies in it. Look at all these plainclothes guys with rifles and machine guns that just suddenly show up in the middle of a neighborhood. Wow, Realistica must be a really dangerous place. Like many of his fellow expatriates, Dunham had first visited Japan while in the military. He was a Marine during the Korean War. He fell in love with a Japanese woman and moved to Japan in the mid-50s. He began acting in a community theater group called Tokyo International Players and was soon discovered by the Kokusai Agency. Robert Dunham might be best known as the King of Cytopia in 1973's Godzilla vs. Megalon, but he appeared in numerous other films, including Dogra and The Green Slime. He was also a stunt driver and a stuntman, a race car driver, an independent filmmaker, and an author of several books, including The Art of Being Japanese, published by Tuttle in 1967. Dunham died in 2001 at the age of 70. Well, now let's continue with the alternate ending story. In the original ending of the film that wasn't used, Clark Nelson's gang kidnaps little Shinji rather than leaving him tied up so they'll have a hostage and keep the authorities at bay when they make their escape. Nelson flees in a Cessna, but the plane crash lands on Mount Kirishima in the Kyushu region of Japan, and the villains hide out in a cave while trying to figure out an escape route. While the heroes and authorities are away tracking down Nelson, Mothra endures the heat cannon treatment and emerges from the cocoon. Our heroes finally find the cave where Nelson's hiding and there's a standoff between the thugs and the police. Nelson's injured from the plane crash and he can no longer carry the case with the fairies in it so he makes the little Shinji carry it at gunpoint. When Shinji tries to escape, one of Nelson's henchmen aims a gun straight at the boy but just as the man fires, Shinji trips and falls, evading the bullet. Then there's a big fracas between Nelson's henchmen and Fukuda and the police, and Nelson's apprehended. Everyone's safe, including the fairies, and all seems to be well for the moment. While our heroes pursue Nelson, Mothra has been aimlessly circling Tokyo Tower, but once the fairies are released from their cage and begin to sing, Mothra heads directly for Kyushu. The fairies ascend to the summit and continue to sing while the police lead Nelson and his accomplice down the mountain but Nelson and his partner somehow manage to subdue the police and grab one of the officer's guns, and then Nelson runs back up the mountain towards the singing fairy, screaming, they're mine! And now Mothra arrives on the scene, and, and Nelson and his thug open fire on the creature with their handguns. The small beauties climb up onto Mothra, and the giant insect flies up into the sky, and the monster then turns directly at Nelson, and as a result, the villain falls off backwards off of a cliff to his doom. Mothra flies away as the girls bid farewell to their friends. Hiroshi Koizumi remembers that the original climax scene on the mountain was shot on location in the Kagoshima area, and still photographs from the shoot have been published in Japan, including the scene where Nelson and his henchman Nakamura are about to fall to their deaths off the mountain. But as far as we know, this footage has never surfaced, and we don't know if any other discarded scenes from this ending were filmed. 
In the Japanese version, there's a funny moment where Frankie Sakai makes a sign of the cross, an interesting moment that was deleted from the U.S. version. Apparently one of those instances where the American editors felt the message of the film was getting a little too serious or heavy-handed, which is kind of funny because the film deals with religion in such a light, inoffensive way. The religion of the infant islanders is never discussed in the movie, but we know from the aborted original story that the island has a creation mythology that follows the basic pattern of the Bible, and the connection between the church bells and Mothra and the religious symbol that resembles a cross here all seem to suggest some sort of vague universal religion theme. So, what does it all mean? Director Honda was the son of a Buddhist monk, and in an interview by American journalist James Bailey in 1991, Honda said he was disturbed by the conflicts that arise over religion and the fact that people are willing to kill one another in the name of their faith. He said, quote, I don't mean just in the Middle East, although that's certainly one example of what I'm talking about. Where's the love that religions are supposed to teach? Well, you can say that Honda's answering his own question at the end of this movie, where people of different faiths and cultures are seen coming together to restore the peace. We're coming up on the reunion of Mothra and the Small Beauties, which features some nice matte photography to put the giant insect on a real-life airport tarmac. Our friend Clifford Harrington, an American journalist and photographer living in Tokyo at the time, was an extra in the crowd on the day this scene was filmed, so we asked Clifford what he recalled about the shoot. I was uh, instructed to report to one of the uh, airfields of the United States Air Force that were in the general, uh, in the general uh, Tokyo area. I believe it was Tachikawa Air Force Base. Uh, Toho wanted to film uh, for Mothra a landing field, and so the peanuts were brought out to the non-commissioned officers club to encourage people to go out and be in the movie. And of course, the managers of the club wanted to treat the peanuts because they were known to the Americans too. And so they asked, what would you like? And somebody suggested ice cream. And of course, the manager overdid it. He brought out so much ice cream, they think they could only finish half of it. The agreement with Toho was that for each person who came out to the field, to be on the tarmac looking at Mothra coming down. They would contribute money to the Soldiers Club. But not an awful lot of people came out to film. And uh, when you look at it still today with Mothra in the picture, you can see people in the foreground down at the bottom of the picture. But I think only about 50 or 60 people came out that day. So they had to work with that uh, fewer number. I think they wanted about 150 or 200 people. But they went ahead and filmed the scene, and then, of course, later, um, Othera was added to the film. In the United States, Japanese science fiction and fantasy films were reviewed by critics and the public and even the distributors that released them as B-movies or cult films during their heyday of the 50s and 60s. Back when these films were released theatrically in America, they were usually relegated to the bottom half of a double bill. For instance, when Columbia released Mothra in 1962, the film was paired up with The Three Stooges in Orbit in some markets, so that gives you an idea of how highly these movies were regarded. There were probably many reasons for this. The fact that they were English dubbed certainly didn't help people take these films seriously, and in the early 60s, the phrase made in Japan was code for cheap. And we hope that no 
So with these biases in mind, it's interesting to go back and see what the reviewers said about Mothra when Columbia first released it in the U.S. in 1962. And surprisingly, some critics had some very nice things to say about the movie. Hazel Flynn, the critic of the Los Angeles Citizen News, reviewed Mothra on a double bill with the William Castle film Zots, and she called Mothra a sort of flying King Kong which can destroy whole modern cities. The sight of the huge flying monster flapping its wings is one of the most impressive special effects I have ever encountered. Box Office Magazine, a trade publication, called Mothra one of the best of its kind and said, Especially engaging are a chubby newsman and a pair of two-foot-high oriental beauties who sing plaintively. But of course, you can't please everyone. The reviewer for Variety called Mothra a ludicrously written, haphazardly executed monster picture from the Toho filmmakers of Japan. Though elaborately produced in Toho scope and color, with a large cast and plenty of production fireworks, the post-dubbed film is too awkward in dramatic construction and crude in histrionic style to score appreciably at the box office. And that, I think, summarizes the prevailing critical attitude towards Japanese sci-fi pictures in their day. For help preparing this commentary, we'd like to thank Mariko Gadzuchewski, Yasuyuki Inoue, Hiroshi Koizumi, Clifford Harrington, David Ito, Emiko Jade Frost, Marsha Narita, Stuart Galbraith IV, Oki Miyano, Brian Culver, Keith Aiken, Bill Warren, Michael Friend, and Joel Ryan. This film has one of my favorite endings. Mothra returns home, peace is restored to the island. The music fits the happy ending mood wonderfully. You know, this is really the only Japanese monster film with a truly happy ending. You know, usually they always end on some kind of pessimistic note or the end of some big conflict. And here we hear the lovely melody of the Peanuts one last time and the chorus of Native sings in harmony. And in one of the best decisions made by Honda, Mothra remains on Infant Island as its guardian. You know, in every other version of the screenplay and original story, Mothra flew off into outer space at the end and entered a negative universe, which probably meant a black hole, I guess. That ending really made no sense, and it's almost a downer. And although it wasn't on their minds at the time, this ending also gave Toho the chance to bring Mothra back to star on the big screen again in 1964's Mothra vs. Godzilla. We're going to conclude with another view of the stone tablet inscription. It was actually a Japanese translation of the inscription printed in the screenplay for this film, which in English reads, Immortal Mothra, grant the wishes of your servants. Now you shall be reborn. With your almighty life, save us. Save the peace. Peace is an eternal way to a glorious future. So we end our story of giant monster destruction, nuclear contamination, kidnapping, exploitation, greed, corruption, murder, environmentalism, love, faith, hope, and friendship on a high note. Mothra is a light-hearted film with its share of heavy ideas, but more than that, it shows the team of Ishiro Honda and Eiji Tsuburaya at the height of their creative powers, and the Japanese fantasy film at the height of its lavishness and audacity. Thanks for listening.